Welcome to the Minder podcast. Bach. to episode 19 of the Mind Podcast in association with Minder.org. Happy New Year to one and all. We are back with a fun episode to start the new season, and that is a top 10 episodes list of the Dennis Waterman years. That is not to take away from the Gary Webster era, and we will cover that in a later episode. Dennis appeared in 73 episodes of Minder, so it has to be split, and there is no question his was the classic era. There were so many episodes to choose from, in fact, that it made it very difficult to narrow down to 10. There are maybe just a couple of episodes from the Dennis era that I am not as keen on, which means there are roughly 70 episodes to choose from. But these are my personal favourites that I love even more than the rest. We will mention the series and episode number, as well as the director and writer of the episode, and also any important guests. There is a brief summary of the episode, and then anything stand out about the episode. So let's get going with the 10th best Minder episode of the Dennis Waterman years. 10. Well, with you, Rose Mellors and inflation, it was hardly bloody worth it. Thank you. And groceries, petrol, four cans of Guinness, the big ones, half a dozen phone calls and a pot of tea, and one shovel. Hello then, Albert. Now look after yourself and be very careful. There are a lot of very shady customers about. Time I've paid George, I'll be out of pocket on this one. Yeah, and bought a few pints. Come on, they're open. I don't know why I bother to help people. With no appreciation. No, it's like the man said, innit? You can't win them all. That's a bit of wisdom, that is, Arthur. Arthur! Still your round? Thanks. Well, Mr D? To crime. Cut that out. Hey, just a minute. Not these ones. What? These. They're no good. Hey? Oh, what's the matter with them? What do you mean, no good? Well, those are the old ones, aren't they? So? Oh, well, you wouldn't have noticed, Mr. Rockefeller, dealing only in 20s, but we changed over once in 1978. These aren't legal tender anymore. Since when? Since June the 1st. Why not? Well, they were all pulled in, weren't they? What am I going to do with all these? It's truth. You found Captain Morgan's treasure or something? Um, are you trying to tell me we can't spend it? What you do is, you step down the Bank of England, you fill in a form, and they'll change them for you, if you're lucky. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear. I'm bloody glad you can see the funny side of it. No, it's quite simple, Arthur. All you've got to do is step over to the Bank of England, throw in a few firearms, and they give you the money for it. Don't know where you got all this lot, anyway. They're nearly all out of circulation. I haven't seen one for ages. <laughs> What's the matter, Terry? 
Yes, Bury My Half at Waltham Green, written by Paul Wheeler and directed by Christopher King. This was the second episode of Series 1. Albert Stubbs is being released from prison, or at least it's supposed to be Albert Stubbs. It's really a con man playing the role of Albert Stubbs. Terry has to mind the con man, but doesn't realise that he is not Albert Stubbs. The real Albert is hiding away with Arthur, ready to go and discover his hidden money that he buried some years before, before going inside. His ex-wife is after him and thinks initially that the con man is him as well. So we have this long-winded chase where Rose Mellors, the wife of Albert Stubbs, finally realises that he is not Albert Stubbs and wants to find the real one. In the midst of all this is Terry trying to mind both of them and work out what's going on. In the end, both Arthur and Terry manage to secrete the real Albert Stubbs away to recover his money, but time has passed and now we find out that money may not be worth what he thought it was. After the first intense episode in the Minder series, this one is a little lighter and much more in line with the Minder we would come to know. A pretty small cast is more than sufficient as it's a great lineup. Anne Lynn appears in her first episode as Rose Mellors. We could definitely have included series 2's Diamonds Are a Girl's Worst Enemy in the top 10, so an early honourable mention to a fabulous episode which also features Rose's hapless minder, Tony Selby, just as this one does. The other main guest actor is Nicky Henson, who does a sterling job of irritating Terry and getting very mixed up in the mystery of who is the real Albert Stubbs. It is Kenneth Cope as it turns out. One of the best scenes is the radio phone-in, where Nicky Henson, who is really George Wilson, calls in to identify a competition answer and reveals not only exactly where he is, but Terry's personal address at the same time. But the highlight is the climax, where Albert Stubbs, now fully escaped from the clutches of his ex-missus, takes Terry to dig up the money he buried all those years ago. He finds the money okay, and pays everyone off their wedge, much to his distaste. As it turns out, however, the money itself is no longer official bank currency, leaving Stubbs and Terry, Arthur and Rose just one option. This episode particularly works simply because of a great cast playing straight, stroke comedic, all the way through. And of course, in a situation like this, there is a degree of actual minding going on, both for the money and the person or people involved. It's a clever episode with lots going on. Nine. No, 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 I can't look. Amazing. Taffy, it's uh, David, actually. Yeah. I would like to tell you that never in all my years in the dark world have I seen a talent like yours. Are you involved in darts, Mr. Daly? Daily holdings, sports and leisure pursuits. We work with all the media people, Kent Walton. I was with him just the other day. You know, um, with the right sort of handling, you can make a tidy sum of money at darts. No, I never play for money. It creates such ill feeling between people, I think. No, 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 you've got it all wrong, my son. He's a highly respected sport now. He's civilised. It's on BBC too. Broken Arrow, directed by Roy Ward Baker, we'll hear from him again, and written by George Day, 
was the 10th episode of Series 3. It concerns Daffod, a young Welshman who is a superb darts player that Arthur discovers. Of course, as per the clip, Arthur reveals his extensive experience in managing darts professionals. Due to Arthur needing to fix a broken stingray that's going to cost him a thousand pounds, and having discovered Daffod, he puts two and two together and thinks he'll organise a darts competition, Daffod will win it, and he will pocket the money. All ends up. It's not as simple as that, however. Firstly, he discovers that there are many decent darts professionals in the area, and secondly, he also discovers just how corrupt that sport can be, as many others. Daffod gets injured deliberately, and Arthur has to scramble to pay the money out to the actual winner, which is Big Bry, of course. Darts was big in the 80s, thanks to Bullseye and real characters in the game. Much like snooker, back then sports stars lived hard as well as being good at a niche sport. Still, building an episode around darts was a brave move. How would it work to feature an interminably boring spectacle? Easy. Mimic the drama of the best darts contests, throw in a bit of ag, and the most glorious name ever seen on a darts player's shirt, D'Artagnan, and you've got yourself a 180. The scene where Arthur can't make up the prize fund because he's used a few notes covering a toilet roll is classic Jack the Lad and pure comedy genius, but as usual, played with straight-faced fear. What would have happened if circumstances didn't bail him out? The one downside to this episode, aside from the very annoying teddy boy, Ted Turton, is that there was probably more in it. If D'Artagnan could genuinely throw as well as he could, i.e. like someone sticking darts in the treble 20 from a millimetre away, then surely Arthur would have not let him go. We'll never know whether D'Artagnan could have been another jockey, Eric or Keith, that's Della. I loved darts in the 80s, and even up until the Phil Taylor era, until I lost money on Raymond Van Barneveld. But I still love Broken Arrow. There's a real warmth to Daffod's character, although I have tried to get him on the show, and I've never heard back from his agent. But nevertheless, great episode, great performances all round, very unique episode, and well worth watching. Eight. Image, Terry, image. Oh, for that gear is ridiculous. Don't show your ignorance. What do you know about rural oak culture? You never set foot outside southwest London. But we're going to collect a bull, not grouse shooting. Now, these clients are gentlemen farmers, aren't they? I've got to look the part, haven't I? Image, Terry, image. Yeah, I've been thinking. Is this business kosher? Why do you say that? Well, it's just I've never heard of bulls being bought on a tally before. And if they were, it'd be a finance firm, wouldn't it? And they'd be responsible for the repossessing, not a couple of farmers. They do things differently in the country, Terry, and they are gentlemen farmers. They don't schlep around the marketplace slapping hands to do deals and handing over the reddies. Hold up, this looks like it. Who are we meeting? Little Red Riding Hood? No, the three bears, now shut up. A lot of bull and a pat on the back. Episode 4 of Series 2, written by Tony Hoare and directed by Terry Green, featured Arthur and Terry having a day in the country, well two days actually, wearing gear fit for grouse shooting and bull collection. In a bold deal, Arthur agrees to collect the large irritable animal on behalf of two gentlemen farmers who are in fact as dodgy as he is. 
After stealing the bull, Terry insists that they put it back when discovering what's really behind the unofficial collection. And all this while minding Debbie, his part-time girlfriend, who is being harassed at the strip club where she uh, strips. In the end, Terry misses out on minding Debbie in time, much to his regret. This is an unusual episode in that Terry actually looks after a friend of his rather than a client for Arthur. In fact, a large side plot of the episode is Terry looking out for Debbie, who is being followed and targeted. In the end, he misses out on protecting her. Fun fact, the writer Tony Hoare was actually dating Debbie, Acker, Diana Malin in real life. We see a strip scene featuring Debbie, as well as several other girls at the club. We also have an appearance by the wonderful Jenny Nevinson in her third episode playing Penny. This is the only episode to pit Debbie against Penny as they fight for Terry's affections. The real star of the episode is of course the bull, as well as the fanciful country get-up Arthur kits himself out in. When the two of them attempt to get hold of the bull, it's another classic minor comedy moment. It also looks pretty uncomfortable, either some great acting from Dennis, or he really did have to calm down a pretty ferocious looking animal. Arthur likes to speak fondly of the country air and my England, but it's very much clear that they both feel out of their depth in amongst country farming folk, even when they are dodgy. A typically brilliant pun for the title, pat on the back, obviously revealing the cow pat that virtually does go on Arthur's back. This episode was part of a run of fantastic episodes at the beginning of Series 2. Series 2 overall might possibly be my favourite. There are a hell of a lot of good episodes there, many of which almost made the list. Seven. Welcome to the body, Sir Willing. <laughs> Terry about? Oh, yeah. Walter? What are you doing here? Where's the punter? Mr. Sane is in there. No, 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 I don't think that's a good idea. Hey, <laughs> what's this, mutiny? No, but he's not expecting you. He's waiting for a geezer called Sardi. Die. Kindly announce to Mr. Sayin that the security advisor to Mr. Elliot and Mr. Sardi would be grateful for... Ah, you are from Mr. Sardi. We are business associates. May I come in? Thank you. Boudin, one of my favourites. But if pressed, I'd have to admit a preference for cannelloni. A cannelletto, surely. Indeed. What can I do for you, Mr... Daly, Arthur Daly. I, uh, I understand you're in banking. That is one of my interests. Which is no doubt why you require the services of my man, Terry. Danger of kidnap. But London is not like Rome. I have good reason for requiring a bodyguard, Mr... Daly. Of course, Mr. Sayin. One can't be too careful. And with my Terry as your minder, you couldn't be in better hands. Why? Mr. Daly, I am a busy man. Please come to the point. I have uh, private business interests. Capital very much in a spoken-for situation, so to speak. A opportunity to make four, four and a half millions. Oh, I am very pleased for you. And? And I am prepared to offer a businessman of impeccable credentials, such as yourself, the opportunity to make a small investment, say, £150,000. Yeah, I have not that kind of money. Oh, I'll arrange a meeting to familiarise you with all the details. I mean, my accountant... Forgive me, but I could not contemplate doing business with a, forgive me, a complete stranger. Well, perhaps I can take you out to lunch. Shall we say tomorrow? One? I'm afraid my schedule forbids it. 
Pleasure to meet you, Mr. Uh, Daly. Goodbye. Perhaps some of your colleagues. We are not in the investment business. Thank you for a generous offer. Well, at least we've made contact. Indeed. I'll uh, just leave you my card. You are too kind. Day or night. Goodbye. For the present. All right, Chief? Mm. You know, Terry, I have been to London before. Yeah? I stayed in the Dorchester Hotel, private suite. Three bodyguards, all armed. My first guest was the permanent secretary at the Foreign Office. What's gone wrong? A Tethered Goat, episode four from series one, written by Murray Smith and directed by James Gatwood. Terry gets a surprising job minding a wealthy and important Arab businessman. However, all is not as it seems with Mr. Sain, played by Lee Montague, who appears in this just the fourth ever episode, one where he might have played Arthur Daly, remember? Sain is being targeted, and Terry and Arthur have to step in to prevent serious trouble, in the end saving a very dodgy dealer. Humour comes from Dyde Llewellyn, a dedicated butler. Choice line from Sain, Llewellyn, I am not a nomad. And then there is exotic dancer Frankie, who is bold and beautiful, informing Arthur when it gets dangerous. Thank you for bearing all, Jenny Lee Wright. Writer Murray Smith had a list of interesting credits, including an episode of The Sweeney, and this turned out to be his only Minder episode, which is quite a surprise. Shame, as this is a really underrated and atypical episode, much more in line with the generally more serious first series. I'd like to have seen others in the same vein, but then this is a real one-off. It's so austere, in fact, that it almost doesn't work. An odd mix of hapless comedy and genuine tension. The comedy is provided by Kenneth Griffith as Di, who has been provided as a butler to serve the needs of Mr. Syene. Terry is, of course, hired as his minder, and does not approve of Di's attempts to put a little Turkish delight Syene's way. Even though he's Lebanese, that's still a good joke. This involves an appearance by the wonderful Jenny Lee Wright, as we said, who doesn't say or do too much in the episode, but provides some light relief. From the off, Terry senses something is not quite right with Sain, and whatever he is caught up in. We have frequent references to the dodgy backstory featuring Michael Sheard, who as usual plays a suspect figure of authority rather well. And let's not forget that Montague himself is a fully-fledged Cockney, so much so he almost became Arthur. His role as a Lebanese is remarkably convincing. This is especially visible in his derisory treatment of Arthur, who sees the opportunity to get into real money, only to be completely blanked by Sain, who deals in much higher stakes of deception. This episode is memorable for all of these reasons, but also as it makes it patently clear that Arthur and Terry do not do shooters, and any threat of serious long-term violence is a bridge too far. That they manage to remove Mr. Sain from the situation, like veterans of presidential protection, is somewhat stretching reality, but it conveys their ability to handle any situation thrown their way. Overall, it is a very enjoyable episode, with just the right blend of comedy and drama, a familiar minder trait, but doubtless one of the best. Six. Have you got any idea how well the new single's doing? I know. So? 
That little bit of nonsense you pulled ever comes to light. You could be in very serious trouble, my son. So, when we saw in the paper that they thought that poor young man might be Alan, it just seemed... Alan? Where's that? Oh, yes. Well, it simply seems like a golden opportunity to get rid of this Zack Zola thing finally and forever and to disappear. Zack had been wanting to get out of the pop business for some time. So he decided to take on a new identity, Alan Trent, and we came to live here. Excuse me asking, my dear, in this your darkest hour, so to speak, but does one it record buy all this? <laughs> it could, I suppose, but it didn't. Cyril Ash took, or perhaps I should say stole, most of Alan's earnings during his short nightmare in show business. Yeah, but I mean, uh, you know. Oh, I inherited it from my father. And Zach shares my love of horses. Well, it all looked like working marvellously. Until now. Listen, you little ingrate. You could stay dead, you know. But you'd never get away with it. How am I going to get done for topping someone who's already officially dead? Hmm. You just get Alan safely back here and I'll handle Sergeant Rycott when the time comes. Ro so so Sergeant Rycott, Ro Ronnie Rycott, out uh, of Fulham. Yes, I believe so. Oh, my good God. Terry! Pop sensation Zach Zola fakes his own death whilst riding high in the charts. Whilst he is dead, Arthur accidentally comes across a master tape of unreleased Zach Zola music, but he is chased down by Zach's manager Cyril Ash, played by Mel Smith. He wants the tape, and Zach, who he discovers is still alive. Choice line. When Arthur tries for a deal, Cyril says to Arthur, You give me the tape, or I'll break your legs. That sounds very reasonable, says Arthur. He is convinced. I'm sure many of you know that this is the episode from which our theme tune comes. It's not Pachypolar and the Asteroids, or Adenoids, but Zack Zola. Zack Zola was really Mike Holloway, who used to be the drummer in Flintlock, and was also an actor, later a DJ. It gets complicated as to who's actually behind the music, however, because for the episode... Mike Holloway played it very well, and he can in fact sing, but the real singer was Phil May of The Pretty Things, and later The Fallen Angels. So Wally Waller and Phil May were both in The Pretty Things, and later The Electric Banana. Officially, Electric Banana is the band that play this music, and it was recorded as a library track. Not very highly rated by many fans of The Pretty Things, but it's actually a really good album, and a very good theme song. Given I've been associated with the music industry much of my life, I can say that A Star Is Gone, great title by the way, captures the ruthlessness and vacuous nature of many people behind the scenes in the music business. Good looking talented people making music and the businessmen behind the scenes exploiting them. It was perfect for Minder. Zack needing to disappear is relevant even today. Having to change his name from Albert Trout, also relevant. Mel Smith is sublime. He seemed to play the same character in virtually everything he did, but was always perfectly cast. If you've not seen it, go and check out the snooker movie number one. It does have Bob Geldof in it, but otherwise I fully recommend it. So why does this episode work so well, and why is it so high? I think it's a combination of the music business aspect and the fact that it was it was quite unusual to feature something so technical, something from behind the scenes. Tony Horry, the knew the music business well himself, 
or he'd certainly done his research. It's also a really fun premise of somebody pretending to die, basically disappearing and trying to hide away, and then trying to avoid being found even when people start to put two and two together. Once again, sometimes Minder works very well just simply using confusion, both for the viewer and the cast. We play along all the way through the episode as Terry and Arthur try and work out what's going on. It keeps your interest, and it makes sure that you watch to the end when all is revealed. The thing is, even when it became complex, it never got too complicated. You could always follow the plot and always follow what was going on, whereas with some series from the 70s and 80s, they tended to get a bit too clever sometimes, and it's not necessary. Minder kept it simple, even though sometimes it was a complex story. That is difficult to do, and great credit to the writer, director, and cast for pulling it off. A Star Is Gone was the seventh episode of series four, written by Tony Hoare, directed by Ian Toynton. Five, three, four thousand, eight hundred. There we are, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Luck had nothing to do with it, eh? Nothing. And there's a lot more where this came from. If we're allowed to finish what we started. Well, he can't chuck you all out. They don't have to. If they nobble just one of us, the whole coupon is null and void. Hey, 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 your, um, your pupils, they're using their own money. So you can't lose. What's your share of profits? 50%. 50% of my own five grand on one night. That's a result worth protecting, Morris. Could be big money, Terry. I've clocked the potential. Two of them won nearly five grand between them. Yeah, but how much did the others lose? Peanuts. That is the principle of Morris's system. See, working as a team, the punter is always ahead of the game. And what is more, Morris doesn't even use his own money. Yeah, all right, so they were lucky. Tomorrow, they'll be unlucky. Look, if Morris has a system and he says it works, that is good enough for me. He is a pro. Yeah, I know. I've seen him in action, remember? Mm. He's seen you in action, too, which is why he wants to hire you. Hire me? Yeah, to look after his six punters. You see, if one of them can't take the field, the game's off. Oh, yeah. No, I'm sorry, mate. My flag's down this week. I'm on holiday. Holiday? Freelance like you, you can't have holidays. You have to take the work as it comes. No, he bloody doesn't. You ought to have more respect for Terry Arthur. You need him more than he needs you. I do not. Need him? <laughs> yeah, minders are two a penny. Not minders with brains. All right, I grant you, Terry is a slight cut above the average. But he isn't Henry Cooper, is he? He isn't exactly snowed under with offers of deodorant commercials. Look, Arthur, come on. Oi, oi, oi. Excuse me. Do you mind not talking about me as if I wasn't here? No, I'm sorry, Arthur. I'm not available. Oh, suit yourself, son. Oh, I was just trying to slip you a quick 600. How much? You lose some, you win some. Written by Jeremy Burnham and directed by James Gatwood. This was the third episode of the aforementioned Fantastic Series 2. Professional and veteran gambler Morris Michelson is running a profitable syndicate at the local casino. By his unbeatable system, everyone playing together can beat the house, but the casino owner is none too pleased and puts the frighteners on Morris. Cue Arthur and Terry to get involved, 
and protect the team. Terry's girlfriend Penny gets embroiled much to her distaste. In the end, Terry loses Penny, but as the title indicates, Morris wins and pays out, while Terry gets the girl, one who's been there all along. Another great episode directed by James Gatwood, who was at the helm for a tethered goat. He appears in two episodes of our top ten. Quite a complex episode with a lot going on and an extensive cast. This episode outdoes the previous one featuring professional gambler Morris. Whilst I do love Aces High and Sometimes Very Low, as you will see, this is a more complete plot, and as ridiculous as it gets, the cast holds it together with convincing performances across the board. Jenny Nevinson shines, or sparkles, as a girlfriend slowly losing all patience with Terry. Anthony Valentine was a consummate actor who lifted any television programme, and I am still sure Morris exists in real life somewhere. A great plot, as all gamblers who are good enough to actually make a living out of their obsession do tend to think they have a perfect system to beat the house. Morris is true to his word as well, making sure everyone gets the percentage he promised when the team wins. We do see his professionalism when he seems to completely ignore the loving look from Jackie, played by Welsh actress Beth Morris. He wants to win, not play from home. Yet he shows his lack of empathy at the end of the episode. After traipsing Terry all over London looking for his missus, Leslie Joseph, when Terry is blown out by Penny, Morris has no sympathy. Either he thinks women don't matter unless you live with them, or he is a selfish git. Either way, it's very well written, especially as Terry has the last laugh, being picked up by Beth Morris, who steals the show right at the end. You do indeed win some. The cattiness amongst certain types of women is well covered, as well as the fact that they might not want you themselves when they get fed up, but they don't want another woman having the chance. The episode looks the business, bringing the casino into your living room, and bringing you the viewer into Terry's living room, with all the team who have to crash there. It also benefits from one of the best casts in the programme, featuring Linda Barron, Leslie Schofield, Sidney Livingstone, later to appear of course with the Gary Webster years, Ronald Lee Hunt and Peggy Thorpe Bates, as well as all the great performers already mentioned. It's an absolute classic. Four. I was just inquiring how you found luncheon, Mr. Blank. Oh, uh, quite easily, Mrs. Mount. It was placed on the table in front of me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> very witty, Mr. Black. <laughs> then, of course, with you being a writer, oh, it must be fascinating. Yes, yes, it does have a certain je ne quais about. Oh, sorry. Bilingual. <laughs> Might one inquire exactly what it is one writes, Mr. Black? Oh, words, you know. Novels? Uh, yes, them and all. Goodness me, it's at the time. You must excuse me, I, uh, I have to get back to the muse. Fascinating. You bastard, you're no good bastard. Oh, I should have known you. How could you do this, eh? I mean, have me believing it. I should have known, of course. You wait till I get hold of you, that's all. You just wait. Listen, instead of this torrent of verbal abuse, I would have thought a note of joyous surprise would have been more in order. It was vital to the schemes of things that you maintain the correct balance of dismay, dignity, and stoic forbearance in this your tragic loss. I mean, if you were convinced, everyone else would be, wouldn't they? Convinced? I... Listen, do you know something? We had a wait for you at the Winchester, didn't we? A wake? Did you really? Hey, uh, tell me, Terry. Who's, uh, who's 
Have you read the papers? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not worried about that. Tax inspectors read papers. Nice little convincer, wasn't it? Yes, it's Arthur is Dead, Long Live Arthur. Episode 4 from Series 6, directed by Terry Green and written by Tony Hoare. Arthur has a very large tax bill and fakes his own death, convincing everyone including Terry. Only Sergeant Chisholm is sceptical, and he has a right to be, for Arthur is hiding out on the coast at a hotel where he befriends a landlady. Justin encourages people to donate for a statue of the great man, but they're more concerned at the money he owes them. When all is revealed, the agreed course of action is to fake amnesia, which cheerful Charlie Chisholm really does not buy. But it's impossible to arrest someone for fake amnesia, even someone who dealt, diddled and died. Appearing as the fourth episode of Series 6, this is the latest episode to appear in our top ten, or any of the honourable mentions. That's not because those series were not good, but it is strange how my favourite episodes reflect a lot of what guests and listeners have been saying, that the latter episodes were not quite as strong as the early series. While you can certainly see this by the choice of best ever episodes, Arthur is Dead is an exception. It was very difficult to decide between the order of the top five, with the exception of the number one. Any of the other four are quite interchangeable. This is a real personal favourite. Firstly, I love the mystery behind a missing person. Secondly, I have a thing against the taxman. Thirdly, I am an author. No surprise then that I find a special significance in this episode, which weirdly enough features Arthur as a combination of all three. The plot might be considered a stretch, but people disappearing in order to avoid a big bill or to gain insurance money is not that unusual, and back in the pre-internet days it was a lot easier to take yourself away and live under a pseudonym. Not that I ever did this, you understand. George Cole's wife, Penny Morell, makes her one and only appearance in a Minder episode here, and the interplay between the two of them is a special edition. Any episode featuring Mark Farmer is a surefire winner, and he is on top form, as virtually the only person with any respect for the much-missed Arthur, who everyone actually believes is dead. This is a lovely little part of the script, that Justin, the Jack the Lad who seems to only be in it for himself, and tends to irritate everyone, is the one character who shows the appropriate behaviour towards the dearly departed. We can't forget Royce Mills also appears in his third and penultimate episode as Arthur's accountant, another character who always livened up the screen. Tony Hoare did write five episodes after this one, including three in the Gary Webster years, but with the exception of one episode, which we will get to shortly, this was his best. Three. Do you see that, Christine? Which one's that? Long blonde job. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I think I'm in there. Kerry, we are attending a funeral. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Well, it's no time to be after a bit of the other. What's she saying? Things are happening quicker than I thought. <laughs> you eyeball that doctor to come up with. A right straitjacket merchant of a bar, I saw one. Oh, come on. I've got to do this on my own. Well, Terry, Terry, help Mr Kane. You interested in gainful employment, Terence? Uh, well, as it happens, I'm well busy at the moment. Uh, yeah, we're pretty full up at the... Moment, Cecil. Modest endeavours, but uh, our own. Don't want to get involved with a balmy old geezer like me, eh, Terence? Well, something like that, yeah. T 
Terence. How can you say such a thing? Always got time for an old friend, Cecil. Right. Give us your address, Terry. Paper on the desk. No, oh, I'll do it. Hold on, Arthur, hold on. No, it's all right. I know your address. I don't want to get involved. Now, now, now. Here we are. Give a geriatric an even break, eh, hey, Terence? Senior Citizen Kane, written by Andrew Payne and directed by Robert Young. This was the second episode of Series 4. After losing his wife and creating a scene at the funeral, the eccentric yet canny Cecil Kane tries to avoid his family's plans for his health and well-being, not trusting them to have his best interests at heart. He asks Arthur and Terry to help him out, and his large hidden savings stash persuades Arthur. Terry protects Cecil throughout, and helps him in his bid to ride the waterways of England, though no one quite realises the plans music lover Cecil has made behind the scenes. Cecil's family, led by the typically selfish Keith Barron, think it's all Arthur's fault, and a farcical, spirited end sees Cecil ride off into the sunset on his old bike, wearing his goggles, with his secretary on the back seat. What a way to go. So difficult to split the top four, as I said. There are so many brilliant aspects to this episode that it veers in and out as my favourite. There was so much to discuss in the interview with Andrew Payne that we unfortunately didn't even mention the background to this episode, but that does not do justice to a quite brilliant piece of writing and performance. Take your pick from a terrific cast. Lionel Jeffries steals the show as the unconventional Cecil, who you immediately feel for, though he clearly doesn't have much time for his kids. And who can blame him? They all give the impression of wanting his money, so he makes sure of planning to hide the money very well. Personally, I'd love a dad or granddad like Cecil. There's more life in him than his kids, and I think this was the idea. Lots of small pieces of well-written and performed scenes, such as when Keith Barron lets Arthur take away the 76 Rolls-Royce Caniche, but tells him of his mother's death. There is the heartfelt respect from Arthur, who is always one to tip his hat on the right occasion, but then the very quick switch to enthusiasm and selfishness as he starts the car. Tremendous. Likewise, you can also see some dark humour in the fact that Terry is quite content to pick up a bird at a funeral. The plot also keeps us guessing right to the end as to what is actually going on with the money and whether Cecil is going to go off alone or not. Instead, he is webbed up with his secretary. Definitely not the lonely old widow, and again, just showing how all is not as it seems, especially with people who have the money to make a choice. A cringeworthy but funny scene is when Cecil and Terry are having a drink and Cecil spots two lovely ladies, played by Gillian Telforth and her sister Kim. He chats them up very badly, and they presume it's Terry's dad, before making themselves scarce. The side plot throughout is Arthur's dodgy Japanese whisky, which he tries to offload to the local Scottish backstreet bar owner, Jock McLeish, played by James Cosmo. Cue another wonderful drunk performance from George Cole, as he has to finish an entire bottle alongside a man who has whisky on his cornflakes. Literally a great blend of comedy and drama, this is a very fun, entertaining episode that never gets old. Two. Johnny, Arthur. This is Johnny Winstanley, the Commodore of the club. Johnny, Arthur Daly. An honour and a privilege, Mr Commodore. <laughs> Johnny has joined me in a number of my business uh, ventures. In fact, he'll be helping out tomorrow. Ah. Say no more, eh, Daly? Nods as good as a wink, what? <laughs> well, now, what about a top? Ah, oh, man, the pumps, yes. Pinkers, please, Teddy. Two pink jeans, Fred. And, uh, Arthur? Oh, well, pink vodka, please, Teddy. One pink vodka. 
I must say, I'm rather glad you came down after all. Your two colleagues seem to be under the impression that I'm out to little them. Oh, I must apologise, Teddy. I'm afraid that is the, the gutter snipe mentality. See, I, I do feel it's my responsibility to give these unfortunate lads a chance. And, and generally, they, they do respond. But when they are absent from my guiding influence, they tend to redress. Well, cheerio. 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 Come on, Johnny, get your dinghy launched. We've been tumbled. Who's that? It's the river fool. Customs and excise. What a fat man in a boat. Yes, it is Goodbye Sailor. Written by Andrew Payne again. Series 5, Episode 1. Directed by Francis McGahey. The plot involves two dodgy deals in one made by Arthur. The main score involves smuggled tobacco for which he sends Terry and Arnie to collect. Along the way, we are introduced to the wonderful Commander Hawksley, played by Murray Watson. Also, some football boots have been stolen, unknowingly from a close friend of Chisholm and Jones's chief superintendent. Naturally, Chisholm is rather excited when realising Arthur is involved. The main story centres on the smuggling operation, and Terry's gradual realisation that they are involved in something rather big, and his insistence that they get rid of everything, something which also happens with the football boots. So Series 5 opened with an absolute classic, and yet another Andrew Payne written episode. I'm sure many would agree that this has to be in the top 10, and it's deserving of a high spot for many reasons. Firstly, it's one of the funniest episodes, verging on consistent comedy as Terry and Arnie take a road trip to the coast. This gives a nice vibe and a change of scene. They do of course come across a couple of posh but dedicated criminals, which changes the course of events considerably, as does the appearance of Penny, played by Sarah Berger. As you might know, we interviewed Sarah for some earlier episodes of the podcast, and these are well worth a listen to learn all about the background to this episode. And then there are also the Andrew Payne interviews, where we do discuss this one. Arthur trying to offload football boots with the stud removed as a new type of deck shoe is a classic, but nothing compared to his performance as a very drunk shipmate who has got so sloshed he fell face first down on the bed until the morning when the seasickness creeps in. And then, of course, there is the immortal line from Ray Winston. Arthur, Terry, Arnie and Penny then finish the episode on a real high as they go looking for the cargo they threw overboard. Andrew Payne could not recall whether it was fully scripted, but it looked natural and improvised. It's not often you see Ray Winston laughing his head off. With the wonderful casting and sexual tension which doesn't lead to anything, this was a true blend of comedy and drama. It really does seem at one point that everyone might get nicked. Unlike our number one, bear with me, I'd say this is another perfect episode from Mr. Payne, and like all the best ones, it never gets old. There are a lot of gems in the Minder catalogue, but this is a masterpiece. One. Can I be of assistance, gentlemen? You must be Jim. Arthur Daly. And, um, this is Terry. I'm sorry, have we met? Well, we have now. 
I'm a business acquaintance of Alex's. I've just come from seeing him at hospital. Been telling me all about your aggro. My aggro? Aggravation problem. And the little firm that's been busy at the demand. He means the two nasties who've been asking you to contribute to their protection scheme. Oh, I see. And I am here to set your mind at rest. You'll have nothing to worry about from this moment on. Oh. Yeah, Alex has asked me, in my capacity as professional security advisor, to see that you and the shop are looked after until he can do it himself. Look after? Reminded, protected. And Terry here is the best. Is he indeed? Hold on, Arthur, hold on. No, you have nothing to worry about with Terry around. Excuse me one moment, would you please? Can I have a word with you? Yeah, what's the matter? Listen, if you think I'm staying in the same pad with that, you've got another thing coming. Sir? What are you talking about? What's wrong with him? Leave it out, can't you see? See? Well, what is there to see? Perfectly charming young man. All right, so he may not be one of the chaps. Oh, the geezer is a raving iron. Don't be ridiculous, an iron. Oh, no, have to scream it. How do you know he's a poofter? How can you tell? I can tell, believe me. Go on, have another look. Don't make it too obvious, eh? He can't be. Can he? Why not? There are thousands of them about. Yeah, I know, but... I mean, no wonder you called that mate of yours a man's man. Leave off, leave off. Alex, a poofter. You must be joking. He's a married man with children. You told me yourself he'd left them and got the lift case with Jolly Jim. In the same flat, Terry. In the same flat. I did not say that was case. There's a spare bedroom. He told me so. Arthur, I don't give a monkey's what your mates in you, right? And I've got nothing against irons. I just don't want to live with one. Look, you are wrong about Alex. I'll lay odds. And even if you're right about him... I don't see that it makes any difference. Oh, you don't, eh? Well, no, I mean, he's not going to try any of that stuff with you, is he? And if he does? Well, then you just have to use a bit of diplomacy, won't you? Say you're sorry, but you're normal. Say it'd upset your mum or something like that. Arthur, it would upset me. I'm likely to give him a right hand and never mind the other firm. No, no, no. Don't you do that. I mean, what would I tell Alex? Look, we could be on a right earner here. The man's loaded. Arthur, what's it going to look like when people hear that I'm living with an iron, eh? It's going to do my reputation the world of bleeding good, innit? Nobody will hear. How can they? Who knows you on this manner? I don't care. I don't like look, it. Look, 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 Terry. Look at it from the positive side. A luxury flat, room of your own, chance to educate your mind at the finer things of life, like antiques. And, I mean, it's not as if you have to be a consulting adult. Arthur, I'm... Look, 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 please, Terry. Just for me. I promise I'll see that everything's kosher. Well, gentlemen, since I've never seen or heard of you before today, you won't mind if I check with Alex about all this, will you? No, no, I'll uh, come with you. Come with me? To the hospital? No, that won't be necessary. So here we are with number one, Whose Wife Is It Anyway? Written by Tony Hoare, directed by Roy Ward Baker. This is episode two from series two. Antiques, gay lovers, thatched barnets, not the usual mind affair I grant you, but totally unmatched in the minder catalogue. It is, of course, whose wife is it anyway? Admittedly, antiques have been used here and there in Minder episodes, but this went to town. Terry minds the friend of Arthur's friend, played by David Dacre. He has been attacked and is laid up in hospital, all the while looking out for his um, partner, who he fears may be targeted next. He hires Terry to protect the shop and his friend, who Terry immediately susses is an iron, iron off, puff. Terry's sixth sense is a big part of the episode, as he also picks up on the fact that Jolly Jim, as he calls him, well he is gay, has made it all up. If there's one person I'd especially love to interview for the podcast, it's Alan Lewis. 
I think his is the best guest performance of any Minder episode. Pun intended, he plays this really straight. Humorless, underhand, yet strangely likeable, his is just the most unusual character in Minder, and it really works, having the hard man David Dacre as his partner, who Arthur gradually realises is not the man's man he thinks he is. You've got what would be considered homophobic remarks today, but really they were just light-hearted observations about people who take themselves a bit too seriously. Dennis Waterman holds the episode together by his good-natured tolerance despite his reservations and finds himself in all sorts of compromising positions, from being stroked in bed by Jolly Jim to going to a gay bar seemingly unaware. Terry's just having a pint talking about the Winchester, oblivious to the fact he's surrounded by men only. For his trouble, he does get to sleep with Janet Key, David Dacre's wife. There's a fantastic scene with Terry's gran which really says a lot about both Terry and Arthur, and indeed old women, where Terry is turning up with the flowers to try and say happy birthday to his gran. She's completely oblivious to his presence. That'll be nice, is pretty much all she says to him. And then Arthur turns up, she comes alive, and Arthur is an absolute star. The nicest person ever, with the greatest of respect to the elderly. She loves it, he loves it, Terry doesn't because Arthur's brought a huge bunch of flowers and he had no idea that Terry would have taken a few from the park. There are some slightly oddball moments, such as the geezer has his barnet thatched, his hair transplant that is, and Arthur's amazing feat of selling watches that stop. This episode pushes the boundaries of plausibility. Check out Dacre's full-body plaster cast. But it works thanks to the tremendous acting and the jokes. Whose Wife Is It Anyway? It's one of the most unusual episodes, and it was done early on. I don't think it would have been made later in the Minder series, even in the late 80s. It's almost throwaway, but it's not. It's the best blend of comedy and drama in the Minder pantheon. Think about it. When you first watch it, you have no idea about the real story. Is Jim being targeted? You believe so completely, and there's a fair bit of tension from it. Dare we say there's sexual tension too, when Terry starts to enjoy his mule marinade and gets cosy in the extremely well-furnished flat. I also love using the theme of antiques to show a higher class of deception, but deception nonetheless. This is an incredibly rich episode, and it's unbeatable. Oh, it's super. We move on now to some honourable mentions. What didn't make the top 10, other than about 60 other episodes? There are a few which are very close and should be mentioned. Again, these are just personal favourites. Ace is high and sometimes very low. Written by Leon Griffiths. Directed by Roy Ward Baker. This was episode 6 of series 1. This might have made it, but I went with my preferred episode featuring Anthony Valentine. The best part of this one is the scenes with the Lotus Eclat, where Morris pays Arthur essentially to park it overnight, and it's just too late to regain his car the next day, although they make an agreement. One of the best car lot scenes in Minder, and still a lovely motor to boot. The Greek club patrons are a pretty realistic group, and I can say that having lived many years in Cyprus. As the saying goes, beware the smiling Greek. That's not to be disparaging about any Greek listeners, I do know that there are a few, 
just to say that they can be mafioso sometimes. And when they are, they tend to smile. What surprised me when putting together my favourite episodes is that there were none written by Leon Griffiths, although he is always credited as script divisor. I think that means he probably acted as editor, but given he was a writer, he probably respected the craft enough to leave most things as they were. According to Andrew Payne, there was very little ad-lib from the actors, so they did the same. This episode is solely written by Leon Griffiths, who tended to write more violent and dramatic material. It's a classic, with a great title. Next is Another Bride, Another Groom, directed by Mike Vardy, written by Willis Hall. This was episode 6 in series 3. This is a very fun episode, with a dark undertone that veers off into something so ridiculous, it's the only reason it does not make the top 10. I love the build-up to the wedding, especially Arthur waking Terry up at 6.30, and several shots of the interior of the daily household. We get to see a different side to Arthur, but he is back on typical form when trying to pick up porno mags on the day of his niece's wedding. It's all quite bizarre when you think about it, and doesn't really fit together very well. Many of the scenes, such as DC Ashmole inserting himself into the church pews and pushing Arthur for money, are quite ludicrous. Terry even agreeing to do such a great array of tasks on such an important day is pushing it, but it's well put together in that he doesn't realise he is picking up anything but books. That he didn't stop to wonder why Arthur is suddenly dealing in books is a great measure of Arthur's persuasiveness. Nevertheless, it is all quite silly, especially at the end when Ian Hogg appears as the Grand Wizard of Pulping Filth. Utterly bizarre, and yet it works. The episode is pure enjoyment, and it's only in trying to analyse it that it lost momentum in my top ten. It shouldn't work, but it still does. Too many great one-liners, and the face of Arthur's niece during the wedding photos says it all. Lastly, Back in Good Old England, written by Andrew Payne, episode 12 from series 3, directed by Francis McGahey. This episode was spoken of quite a bit in the Andrew Payne interview, in particular the notion of an Englishman trying to make it abroad, and then coming back to find things are even worse than when he left. You can't beat a bit of Pete Postlethwaite, and I love the interchange between Arthur Terry and Pete's character. Arthur likes to call him oily, as he's really not fond. Terry is more enamoured. But in the end, and to Arthur's credit, we see Jack Rag doing a runner away from all those who still want to make him pay for his previous misdemeanours. It's at this point that we get to my favourite scene, featuring Royston Tickner as the skipper. OK. All right. Nice to see you. Hello, sailor. Who the bloody hell's this? Yeah, don't worry. Look, this is your man. 800 quid for a ride in this? We're only hiring it, you know, not buying it. Tickner notice is all right. Is that lot with you? Oh my god. Oh, I might have guessed. Come on. Great interplay in this scene and elsewhere involving Des as well. This is a fabulous episode, but we couldn't have three Andrew Payne in the top ten, could we? As it happens, the eagle-eared amongst you may have noticed that we do have four Tony Hoare episodes. Considering he wrote twenty, that is some feat. So it's become undeniable that he is my favourite writer on Minder. And it's also clear that Roy Ward Baker pops in as top director with three episodes. Out of 13 that he directed, that is quite standout. Well, I hope you enjoyed a trip down memory lane and what was a very difficult job. I've been thinking about this for over a year, so I can finally say I'm happy with the list, I think. Let me know your favourites, especially your top three, and why and whether you think I missed a classic. I'm sure I did. I'm your host, Paul Stenning. Thanks for listening.
Until next time, adios amigos.